Good morning, everyone. Let's go ahead and get started. <laughs> Good for us to be together here in our journey through the New Testament. And today we are coming to the book of James. So there's a lot more we can talk about in the book of Hebrews, but um, since it is a survey type study, let's just continue to move on. So let's begin by asking the Lord's blessing. Father, we do thank you for the opportunity to sit under the authority of your word. Thank you for your word that is true and unchanging. And thank you for your abiding spirit that teaches and guides us. And as the author of this book, would he be pleased to help us in his understanding. And so, Lord, in this time, we just commit it to your care. We ask for your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. I hope everyone has a copy of the student notes. Um, oh, I haven't turned it on yet. It's, it's ready to go once I say go. Okay. I think if we were to take any survey and observe what's happening all around us, we would see that there is a great need for wisdom. Uh, there are a lot of people who just do not seem to live very wise lives. There's a lot of folly among us. There's a lot of folly that is presented as truth. But it brings us to a definition of wisdom. Now what, what is wisdom according to the Bible? Any ideas? Knowledge applied. Knowledge applied. Very good one. Okay. Practically living righteous lives. Practical. Practically living righteous lives. Okay. Excellent. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's right. So what does it mean to fear the Lord in that context? Honor Honor Reverence, right? Honoring and glorifying. Okay? Great. You've captured it. Biblical wisdom is living properly before men and before God. It's, it's knowing how to. So this knowledge applied or this righteous life that is to be lived out. Can this be simplified? Biblical wisdom is living properly before men and before God. So we get to this little epistle called the, the Epistle of James. And it's really a book of wisdom. Really in the tradition of the Old Testament books of wisdom, with Proverbs and Psalms and Ecclesiastes and etc. Yes? Telling us what is properly, because you know the world would have a totally different. So the rest of the book then is telling us what properly. Yes, wisdom. I'm looking at this in general in the Bible is living properly, where in other words, it's according to the ways of God. As I said, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, right? So it's it, obviously if He's the source or the fountainhead, then it's teaching us how to live. So the book of James is a book of wisdom. It's not really like some of the letters of Paul, which are very deep in just getting theology. Although there is a lot of good and deep theology in James. But James is concerned about showing the gospel life. And you've probably picked up on it already, just in the brief time we spent in the Sermon on the Mount, how often I refer to James. And we're going to talk about why that is when we go through this, because James obviously paid attention at some point to what Jesus was saying. Okay? If you look at the history of the book of James, it took a while for both the Western church and the Eastern church to, to recognize it. Um, 
We don't necessarily need to go into all to the whys and wherefores of all of that, but it's a book that was a little bit took a little bit of time to be recognized, in part because of the early relationship that James had with Jesus. That he was an unbeliever for really all of his life until, I think, he met Jesus after the resurrection. And we'll look at that. And so then it was like, well, what's, you know, who's this Johnny come lately, you know, that suddenly wants to be teaching us? But it's been quoted in the history of the church. Eusebius, who wrote the first history of the church, quotes from James many times. Um, and the eastern half of the Roman Empire and the western half of the Roman Empire had discussions. They never decided what books were to be in the Bible, contrary to popular thinking. What they did was recognize those books that had the fingerprint of God. And it wasn't always clear for them to how, to how to understand that. And so there was these discussions that went on. And in both eastern and western half, James was a little later in the process where finally the church recognized, oh yes, this is one of them that was inspired by God the Holy Spirit. It was, an, it was a moving, dynamic process. God is a God who works and moves with His people. And, and so it's a relationship with the church that, that was being formed in Christ, guided by the Spirit. It was methodical as they fought through things and eventually became to be recognized for what it is, one of God's gifts to the church, one of the 27 books of the, Old Testament, of the New Testament. You notice I have a quote here from Martin Luther. Now think of the historical context of Martin Luther. The church of Rome had gone astray on just about every facet, and certainly had lost the gospel. There was a works righteousness, there was a, um, a sacrificial system of priesthood and offerings that, where we had to go through a ritual of earning merit by grace, which those two words don't go together, and eventually you'd reach a point where you would actually become perfect, and then God could declare you righteous. Okay? Martin Luther struggled with that. Nobody wanted to please God more than Martin Luther. He agonized over his sin. He punished his body. He punished himself emotionally. He really wanted to be purged of his sins. And he discovered, rediscovered, the gospel, the doctrine of justification by faith alone. So that's the context. Right? Justification by faith alone. So he got some of the statements in John and James that say, for man is not justified by faith alone, by works of the law. He's like, this must be an epistle of straw. <clears throat> okay? But he didn't stay in that opinion. As he studied the scriptures further and began to see there is no contradiction between what Paul was saying in Romans 3 and 4 and what James is saying in 1 and 2, he began to appreciate it and actually wrote a commentary on the letter. But we can understand the historical context of why he had some reservation. He wanted to solely exalt Christ, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, the glory of God alone, that when he spread James through that lens, he thought initially James was saying something different than that. But a proper understanding of James shows that that's not the case. Okay? So then he would go on to say that he thought would find it useful in good sayings and people can read it. He never actually denied it should be in the canon, but he did publicly express his concerns about it. So, that leads us to the next question then. Who's the author of the book of James? 
And in your notes, I, I show for you that there were several men called James in the New Testament. And you have the scriptures, you can look them up. Um, the relationships that they have, are they the possibilities or that? Um, really, if we just cut to the chase, the evidence favors James, the half-brother of Jesus. Now, you wonder, why do I say the half-brother of Jesus? I'm going to get to that discussion that we will have about how the church, writ large, has understood the relationship between Jesus and Mary. Therefore, the relationship between Jesus and the other people that are mentioned in the New Testament as being his brothers and sisters. And the church has had three different positions on that. So we'll just briefly explain that. Why even today some Christians have different positions. And I'll explain to you why I have mine. Which is why I refer to him as the half-brother of the Lord. Because I believe that James and Jesus had the same mother. But didn't have the same father. I do not believe in the perpetual virginity of Mary. Contrary to points of view that are presented elsewhere in church history. So... If we look at uh, James, the, the half-brother of the Lord, point four, we see that he is mentioned in Galatians 1. He is mentioned as the brothers of Jesus in the Gospels. And this is the James that became the leader of the Jerusalem church after the ascension of Christ. Okay? And he became the leader of the Jerusalem Council. He was the one that was seen as a forefront. And he was known as a, a man of great integrity and faith. And church history has referred to him as Camelies. Because he was known to be a man of prayer. Now, I don't know how many of you had a chance to look at the knees of camels. But they're not going to be on the cover of Vogue magazine. Okay? They are extremely rough and coarse and thick-skinned. And so if you have that name, camel means you spend a lot of time on your knees in prayer. Okay? It's a positive thing. I don't, I'm quite sure. I, don't, I wouldn't get that nickname. Because most of the time when I'm praying, I'm sitting. <laughs> okay? But the point being, this was a godly man. Now, you get down to uh, point F on the first page. Was Jesus a brother? Um, or, or was he a half-brother or was he a cousin of Jesus? And so there are three views that are presented there. And there were three bishops early on that gave their opinion as to what would happen. And roughly today they break down into the positions of the Roman Catholic Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church, and what we might say the Protestant Church or Evangelicals. Okay? Jerome, who was used of the Lord in the 4th and 5th century, was the one that translated initially the New Testament into Latin, what we call the Vulgate, said that he saw that this James as being the cousin of Jesus. And uh, that has been the position of the Roman Catholic Church up till today, and they have many reasons for it. Among other things, that um, they just believe that Mary remained a virgin her whole life, therefore she would not have had other children, therefore the mentions of the four brothers or four men, and at least two women in a couple of passages, must have been cousins. 
And they'll say things like, if you notice at the cross, if in fact these had been Mary's other sons, why did Jesus confer Mary to John and not to the other siblings? Okay, that's one of the arguments that is there. And then they have this idea that if Jesus was to be the sinless Savior, he had to have been born to a sinless mother, as if somehow being married and being involved in the act of marriage was sinful. So it's really calling God's creation sinful, in my opinion. Okay? I do not find that satisfactory as a point of view. That was the point of view that I was raised in. Um, and therefore, I was to see Mary as perpetually a virgin because somehow virginity was to be seen as the ultimate expression of godliness. Which is interesting to me because God has always used the image of marriage when talking about his relationship with his people. Bride, bridegroom, husband, wife, uh, etc. So, this is not to downplay moral purity. It's, but it is to give a biblical balance that moral purity is expressed both in chaste living and in holy married living. So that's one point of view. A second point of view is that the sons that are referred to, they are brothers, they are sisters, but they are children that Joseph had from a previous marriage. And so this would be more the Eastern Orthodox position because they still want to uphold the virginity of Mary and yet still see some type of brother relationship to these four and two that are mentioned because if you put them all together, Mary would have had seven, as I can count it in the New Testament. That this must have been from another marriage. Um, it's based on, again, on John at the cross, where Jesus gives his mother to John and not to Joseph's sons. Well, I think we've run into some clear statements uh, that contradict the Gospels themselves. Let's think a little bit about what Jesus had to say about marriage and family. We know he had a very high view of marriage. After all, he's the agent of creation. He is the one that affirmed the teachings of Genesis, that a man shall leave his father and mother and cling to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That was his view of marriage. What was his view of family? He greatly affirmed it. Obviously, as God, he's going to affirm the Ten Commandments. Honor your father and mother. But in the call of the gospel, we see it in Matthew and in the other gospels. He also says that the true family of believers is what? The family of God. So when they came to him and they came to him and said, Hey, your mother and your brothers are outside, he says, Who's my mother? Who are my brothers? But the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. So he is definitely making a distinction between the physical family, which has great value in his life, and the ultimate family, which is the ones that he has redeemed, and that will be in his presence forever. Okay? So, when we get to that argument that these two groups like to use, well, at the cross, Jesus gave his mother to John. We have an answer within the Gospels itself of why that's the case. Because his other siblings, at least as near as I can tell, hadn't believed in him yet. And so he was going to confide or confirm the care of his mother into the hands of those that believed in him. The true family, the spiritual family of God. Okay? And we see that within the scriptures. So the third view then, by another bishop, is that Mary had other children with Joseph in a normal, holy marriage after the birth of Jesus. 
And I think that's the clearest statement from Scripture. For he knew her not until... Well, the only way I can understand that, biblically, this word knowledge means an intimacy. He knew her not until. Implies that when until came to an end, he knew her. Okay? And that is, that is a holy thing in the eyes of God. He is the author of marriage. So, I think we gain more appreciation from the epistle of James if we recognize that he is the half-brother of Jesus, grew up with him in the same house, would have done the same activities together, would have understood sibling relationships, and still would recognize him as more than just an earthly brother, but in fact as God, of whom he is the servant. Okay? So, there are those that would disagree with that position. I've, I've made it clear, but I, I always uh, I remind people, they say, well, uh, you know, Pastor so-and-so said such-and-such, so he disagrees with you. And so my response is, that's great. And I say this, and I disagree with him. It's not like we have to be buffaloed into changing our opinion because somebody disagrees with us. What it does make us do is we need to look at the text carefully again and say, well, maybe I do need correction, or maybe they need correction. Okay? That's why we do theology in community. That's why church history is important. That's why we study with brothers and sisters who have gone before us. Though physically, of course, we can't. We can read their writings. That's why we do group Bible studies. That's why we gather in church on Sunday mornings. That's why we have connection groups. We need to build into each other's lives. Yes? In Luke, um, it, Jesus is called Mary's firstborn son. And yes. to me, that doesn't make sense unless she has a secondborn son. So, exactly right, especially when you get to the Greek. Okay? Because there is a word for firstborn, which is the word that's used here. I mean, firstborn means there's a secondborn or a thirdborn or others. There is another one that means firstborn as one among equals, and it's the word that's used in the Gospel of John. He gives one and only son. Monogenes is the word that's used in that context. One of a kind, unique. God gave his son, who is the highest in rank. But that's not the word that's used in Luke. It's the word, the word that's used in Luke is just said. Like we would use it in common vernacular, Zachary is our firstborn son. So we have Nathan, we have Sarah. Okay, we understand that, that that's the normal use of language, and so that's how I think we should see this then as James, and not be afraid to say that James is the half brother of our Lord. Okay, yeah. I heard that individual who was strongly on the Roman Catholic side right. said that in the quote original, whatever that means that the word for cousin and brother are the same word and therefore they, they could translate it their way and we can we translate it a different way. <clears throat> All I have to do is point to them in the book of Colossians where we have the word cousin that is different than the word brother used in the same book at the same time to show that those two words existed in the same space and time as brother and cousin. And so if this interpretation is right, why then two different words? Okay? So what ultimately happens is, and, and I'll say this as respectfully as I can, growing up in the Roman Catholic tradition, which I left at age 18, is they start with an assumption of what things must be, and then they do their theology. Okay? 
Well, because we as collective people are not smart enough to do that, it's better to start with what the Word says and build our theology off of that. Okay, and let words mean what words mean. So brother, sister means brother, sister, in the context of mentioning who the mother is or who the father is. Don't play exceptions because you want to hold some other view, you know, of someone else, okay? This is not to impugn Mary. If you remember Christmas time, I preached a whole sermon on Mary. How we as evangelicals love Mary. She's our sister in Christ. We're going to be co-heirs forever in, in the presence of God with Mary. That we rejoice in her obedience. We rejoice in how God used her. Okay? So this is not to bring her down. It's to give her her proper role and respect that she has as a servant of Christ. Okay? So, let's just leave that for now. Let's look at the date. I think the date... I probably should have this. Well, let, let me go back to this. This is the one point that I, I got sidetracked, so I wanted to... If you look at 1 Corinthians 15, somebody can... Can somebody go to 1 Corinthians 15 and start reading in verse 3 and then read down to verse 8. This is a loud voice. Just read it out for us. 1 Corinthians 15, starting about in verse 3 or verse 4, down to verse 8. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He was seen by Cephas, then by the Twelve. After that, He was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remains in the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, He was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also as one born out of due time. So I want to just point out that phrase. He was seen by James, his brother. What do we see from James before that time? I have a couple of passages here. John 7, 1 to 8, Matthew 12, 46 to 50. Let's just read a couple of them. And let's look at the response of James to his brother Jesus before the resurrection. Okay? So someone have uh, John, James 7, 1 to 8. I need John. Jesus went to Galilee. Went about in Galilee. He could not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brother said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works of your hands. Notice, your disciples see the work of your hands. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Okay, we can just stop there. They're trying to goad him into doing things according to the ways of the world. 
You want to be known? You want to be seen? Get your PR campaign. Get your billboards up. Go to the big city. Show your display. That's the way people will know about you. Okay? But Jesus says, my time is, is the Father's time. And he says, I will do things on the Father's time. Okay? Let's look at Matthew 12. While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, your mother and brother are standing outside wanting to speak to you. He replied, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Okay. So he makes a distinction then between his disciples and his earthly family, right? He says, they're not my true brothers. They're not my true mother. We're, I belong to the family of God. So, in the same continuation, then, if we go to Matthew 13, it's one page over, verse 55. <coughs> Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judah? And are not all his sisters with us? Where did this man get all these things? Now, if I had no preconceptions about what those words must mean, if I just used the normal course of language as we understand it, if I read that to you, is this not the carpenter's son? What are you going to think? Joseph's son. Son of a carpenter, human, right? That's what they understood. Is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, Jews? And not all our sisters with us? In a normal culture language, you would say he had a human family. That's what, if language means anything, this means he had a human family. Okay? So, but they didn't believe in him. Notice he makes a distinction. And the only brother that I can see, and, and I'm willing to learn on this, but the only brother, I don't see any brother present at the cross. I only see his mother. Which kind of makes the case then, right, that the mother was given to the true brothers who are the believers. Yeah. I'm back to Gail's passage in Matthew. Did I misunderstand, or did, does that mean that Mary at that time didn't believe in him either? It's hard to know. That's a good question. We know she did by the end. We don't know at what point. Remember, early on this opaque language, she pondered these things in her heart. And we're left to kind of wonder as her development along the way. But it seems like she did become a believer, though not fully understanding. But now James, Jesus appears to James, and up to this point, no belief, no belief, no belief, no belief, not even at the cross, after all. Who wants to see their brother hung up on a cross for all the world to see? How embarrassing this would be. Okay? But then he sees Jesus after the resurrection. And suddenly in the, the, the history changes where now the next time we see him in scripture, he shows up as a spiritual leader in the church in Jerusalem. How did that happen? Obviously, we're doing some deductive reasoning. I can't do a specific A, B, C, D, E here. We're just pulling together pieces to show that at some point he became a believer. And it seems to have happened after the resurrection. So even his brothers did not believe in him. Um, but Jesus moved on. And then James became this great leader in the church. Okay? 
history tells us that he died a martyr's death. <coughs> but with that in mind, how does James begin his letter? Keeping in mind his relationship, who he was, how does he begin his letter? James is a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. The word actually is slave. Okay? He doesn't start out his letter by saying, James, the bishop of Jerusalem, and the big cheese in the family. Okay? He doesn't start out by saying, the brother of the Savior. This is a servant of God, a slave of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, he now understands his proper relationship to his brother. Just like Jesus had, in a sense, educate Mary on who he really was, he said, that doesn't concern me, John chapter 2. It doesn't concern me right now. My hour's not yet come. Basically telling Mary, you need to come to me in the same way that everybody else comes, by faith. And you can't make special claims on how I will operate according to the Father's timing. Okay? So, we'll know for certain when we see him. But as I put the pieces together, it seems like he didn't believe in Jesus. Because who would believe in such a weird message? Especially if it's your brother. It's, they're clearly embarrassed by him. And the account in Matthew 12, they're coming to get him. He's embarrassing the family. They're outside. They're coming to get you. They want to take you away. They want to get you out of the situation. You're bringing dishonor to the name of the family. He says, my family are those that believe in me. But then Jesus appears to him in his glorified state after the resurrection he becomes a believer. Okay? So, he becomes this leader in the church. So when was this book written? Well, early on, it seems to me. <coughs> We've already looked at this. You can see the different uh, bishops that are mentioned. Jerome, Epiphanius, or Helvidius. You know, the views that they had. I think this book was written early on. The reason for that is by Acts chapter 15, which took place in 50 AD, we have the Council, the Jerusalem Council. Okay? James is the leader of that council. Yet he doesn't mention the council in this book. What was, what was so important about this council? It taught how Gentiles who have come to faith in Christ how they will live in the same community with Jewish leaders in Christ. That's really instrumental in how the early church grew. That this church made this decision, they would not imply, they would not apply the ceremonial law to Gentiles. But that they would all, the Gentiles and the Jews would come to Christ on the same footing, in the same family. He doesn't mention that here. He does not mention that council, which was pivotal in how the early church functioned. And so with a number of commentators, as I've looked at the reasoning, I think it's quite early. He talks about a famine in the book of James. Well, there was a big famine in Jerusalem around 46 AD. And so I think that is one historical marker where we can see approximately when the book of James was written. It was about that time. And if that's the case, it's among the first books that was written in the New Testament. Some would say the first, some would say the book of Galatians. But they're the earliest books that we have written, the book of Galatians and the book of James. Okay? And there's more historical background that we can do to that. 
to get a bigger understanding. But it was written very early on. So here we have Jesus spending on the calendar. Because <laughs> it's changed over time. Let's say Jesus was crucified in 30 AD. Okay? I mean, he was, he was born as early as 5 or 6 BC. Okay? Because <laughs> the calendar got shifted in the Middle Ages. Okay? So if we just do the math, 5 or 6 BC, he lived about 30 years to the start of his ministry. 33 brings us up to 27 AD. So let's say it's 27 AD when he's crucified. Whether it's 27 or it's 30 AD, depending on the calendar, okay? We're talking about a short period of time where suddenly he has become the leader of the church in Jerusalem. The book of Acts starts out, Jesus goes back to heaven, the Holy Spirit descends, the church begins to preach the gospel among Jerusalem, and for a number of years the gospel stays in Jerusalem. So this would have happened early on. And he became one of the leaders. He's writing to Jewish Christians who are living outside of Palestine. And if we look in Acts 15, he is now the leader. So by the time of Jesus ascending to heaven, let's say 30 AD, by the time this council has happened in 50 AD, James is now the leader. It's a short period of time for someone to become the, the spiritual leader of the church. But based on his reputation, his leadership skills, he was called James the Just by the early church. He became the leader. And he's writing to those outs, those that have been scattered in the persecution, how they were to live. Now, there's an interesting thing <clears throat> on how he died. It, it, church tradition tells us that he died in 62 AD. Church tradition isn't always correct, but it's not always incorrect either. So we have to base it on other events that we see. And, and it seems that he died under the persecution of Festus, the Roman leader at that time. Um, Festus died actually just after Festus uh, Festus died a new leader was coming whose name was Albinus history tells us and it's during that time that church history tells us that James died um, there was a high priest who didn't like James took advantage of a lack of leadership on the part of the Romans because the, Ro the Romans would not allow the Jews to execute people but in any case, not going to the whole detail, James died a martyr's death, having been brought to the top of the temple. He was asked to renounce his faith in Christ. And he supposedly said, Why are you asking me about the Son of Man? He is seated in heaven at the right hand of great power and will come again in the clouds of heaven. He's just repeating what Jesus said in his trial. This Jesus, my brother, is the Son of Man of Daniel 7 who has a kingdom, who will rule forever, and he will come again with great power. And upon that, he was thrown off the pinnacle of the temple to the ground and died. That's what church history tells us. And we can piece it together based on all these different things, okay? So, certainly he was called James the Just. He was called Camelese. He was the leader of the early church. He had met the Lord Jesus Christ after the resurrection, and he became a great spiritual leader. But he begins to counsel the early church as they're spreading out all over the place. Okay? Excuse me. And there's, yeah. It, it just seems that if in D 
indeed, this scientist is a new thought to me, but if it was among the first of writings, it's like some of the language of salvation comes through Paul. Yeah. I mean, in the explanations, and right. we, we say, well, it, it's like this, like this, but that's because Paul wrote. So if he wrote before, he just he's not influenced by the other language. Very good. Very good observation. And his concern is what? Living this out in the diaspora, as he says, the, the dispersion, how to live out faithfully the gospel, including persecution, which the book talks a lot about being persecuted. What does true faith look like? How is it played out and how we relate to one another? And so that language of practical salvation, as you rightly saying, means that he's not been influenced by the more uh, scholarly Paul. Right, with his educated, educated language. All right, that was a lot of talking about a lot of different things. So let me just pause here a minute and allow you to catch up a little bit. Okay. Any questions about what we've talked about? Just comment. Uh, okay. I don't want to confuse, <coughs> confuse uh, James with John Brothers. Who was all speak up. James, the brother of John, was martyred in, Jer in Jerusalem. Now that James, that, that's a different James. Yes, I, so that's what I just want yeah. to point out. Brother of John. Yes. 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 Early on in the book of Acts. Very so is, good. Is there any other record or evidence that might be some, some different way that he died? Or? How, how James died? Yeah. These are just writings gleaned from the early writers, you know, both from secular and Jewish sources. So that seems to be the common story at the time, that he died a martyr's death. There's more to it, that he didn't actually die when he was thrown off, that he lived, and, and eventually they, they, they run, run him through, and he's bleeding, and he still doesn't die, so they whopped him over the head. That's how the whole story plays out, how he died. But th there doesn't seem to be anything that contradicts the fact that he died a martyr's death. Some of the details could get a little bit, um, the word for it is hagiographic. So hagios is the Greek word for holy. And with time, we tend to sanitize and make more holy the writings and, and uh, the rituals of certain people. Um, but this is so early in its account that there had to have been some truth to it. And he died at a martyr's death um, early on. But I, you know, can I produce a whole book? No. <laughs> Not a lot of things were preserved because of the way they were written, you know, disintegrated. Okay? So if we look at how the book is laid out, it's really hard to structure this book because he addresses so many different things. It's a wonderful little book. It's a challenging little book. But he talks about so many different things that doesn't really necessarily any one of them. But this is my best attempt at just trying to categorize a little bit um, how he's bringing it together. But even then, there's some crossover. Okay? So there's not much difference between the fact that I decided not to even do one because it was just, I have a very detailed outline here that if I were to preach through, but um, I didn't I did put it up on the screen. When I read the book of James, what do we see? What are some of the main things? He talks a lot about the rich and the poor. 
If we're, if we're not careful, we could tend to interpret all wealth as evil and all poverty as spiritual. Now we've talked about that, that we have to be careful about that because it's not necessarily the case. God promised the people of Israel, they went into the land and they were industrious, they would prosper. And he warned them by saying, do not say by the strength of my hand and my mind, I have gained this prosperity. For it is the Lord who gives you the ability. So faith that is lived out can be prosperous and often is. In the, in the early years of our own country, when the Puritans came to the United States and started applying the Puritan work ethic, they were hard workers, they were industrious, they were honoring and honest. And they said, we, we've run into this conundrum where the harder we work and we're working with integrity, we start prospering. And then we wonder what to do with this prosperity. And then it's the misuse sometimes of the prosperity that led to some of the early problems. But it was not the prosperity itself that was the problem. It was how to use it. Well, in this short epistle, James talks a lot about the poor. In this case, oftentimes it is the materially poor. Warning the rich who tend to exploit them, to not exploit them, to take care of them. Um, God is the one who protects and takes care of the widow, the orphan, the alien in the land. Over several chapters, he mentions the contrast between the poor and the rich. He warns the rich, look, your wealth is not going to endure. So therefore, use your wealth to practice true religion. Take care of widows. Take care of orphans. Don't show favoritism towards the rich. Welcome all. Take care of all. You see these themes coming up all throughout the book of James. Properly use the material wealth for taking care of the needs of the saints. And then we'll say that if, if the rich exploit the poor, God hears the cries of the poor and there will be judgment. I think we see that all throughout the book. And really that's biblical balance all throughout as well. How wealth is seen, how riches and poverty are seen. It really comes down to righteousness. It really comes down to integrity, the proper use of the resources that God has given. But... If you're reading through the book of James, and you have any means at all, you feel the sting at times of what he's saying. Because we recognize then that if we've been given means, we should use them to help others. It becomes how. Which brings us to the next one. Wisdom. We talked about wisdom. Biblical wisdom is knowing how to live rightly before men and before God. Wisdom is a gift. I wonder how many of us could actually give the context of James 1.5 without looking at it. We just throw it in our Bible studies all the time. Many of you lack wisdom. Let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. And if we isolate that verse, we think it's just a slot machine from heaven. You need wisdom? Ask for wisdom and wisdom shall come. Okay? There's enough truth in that that we can get away with it until we actually look at the text. Okay? Text, without a context, is a pretext for a proof text. Okay? We don't want to turn the Bible into a proof text. What's the context of James 1? Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God. You hear the context. 
your suffering. You want to understand how suffering can bring about steadfastness, sanctification, growing in spirituality? Ask God. And He will give you understanding in how to do that. Okay? It's not that we don't ask for wisdom. We can. We should. But let's just make sure we're using promises of Scripture in the way that they're intended before we just jump to what we think is the application and conclusion. So this person is not to ask doubtingly. You're not to, they're to ask in faith. You're not to be swept back and forth by every wave of the sea. Tossed back and forth. No. You want to be steadfast? Verse 3. You want to be steadfast? Verse 4. Get the wisdom of God. Verse 5. Without doubting. Verse 6. So that you will not be tossed around. And be double-minded. Okay? Well, James will go on and say more about wisdom. So let's turn to chapter 3, where he clearly lays out for us two types of wisdom. Remember we talked about wisdom as the properly living before God and before men? Look at chapter 3, verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. You see, this is wisdom lived out, knowledge applied, righteousness practiced. Okay? It'll show itself. The wisdom that is from above will show itself. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, do not boast to be false in the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above. So there's a wisdom from above, and there's a wisdom from below. wisdom, obviously, we know which one we want and it will show itself in how we work. For the wisdom that is from below is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. If we feel the weight of those words and we start thinking, well, we need the collective wisdom of man to make these decisions. It's like, do we really want the collective wisdom of man in all cases that comes from below? That is unspiritual and demonic? We want the wisdom that is from above. He's, he's, see what he's talking about how to properly live. If we want to properly live according to the ways of God, we need the wisdom from above. So after comparing to what the wisdom from below is, verse 17, now we begin to breathe a little bit because when we hear about this wisdom that comes from below, earthly, unspiritual, demonic, jealousy, selfish ambition, disorder, every vile practice... Verse 17, but the wisdom from above is first pure, impeaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Do you hear the echoes of the Sermon on the Mount here? They're all throughout the letter of James. Somewhere along the line, he got the message of Jesus and how to live it out. And it's almost as if he's summarizing in fear form the Sermon on the Mount by these short sentences that he gives us. But imagine now if we had a wisdom not from below, which is unspiritual, earthly, and demonic, but a wisdom that's from above. Pure, 
peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, good fruits, impartial, sincere, a harvest of righteousness, and those who make peace. If you had to choose between those two worldviews, and those are the only two that are there, <laughs> make sure you're choosing wisely, right? The proper use of wisdom. And now we understand in a little bit deeper way what it involves. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Because James here talks about peacemakers, doesn't he? Righteousness, a harvest of righteousness is sown by peace, in peace, by those who make peace. I was talking with um, Brother Jim here before the service today, just saying, no, the Word of God is this. This all fits. The more you learn about the Word of God and all the little, we think they're cul-de-sacs, we think they're little tangential things, but we put all the pieces together, they just all snap together, giving a, a perfect picture of what God wants us to understand. James here is helping us to piece together, as it were, a puzzle of the Sermon on the Mount. And as we go through the weeks to come in the sermon series, you're going to hear more and more if you've had a chance to go through the book of James. Now, of course, Jesus spoke first, so you know, we need to recognize that James is applying what he learned from the one he now says is his master, because he's the servant of the Lord. Two types of wisdom. And we have this idea of perfection. You know, in the last 150, 200 years of so in church history, there's been a lot of talk about perfectionism. Can you attain a level of perfection, of somehow perfect love, of no more sinning, of having some type of higher spiritual plane? That is not what James is talking about when he uses the word perfection. He's using the word that means mature. Uh, that means... That's what perfect always means. Teleos. We get the word telos. Telography. The purpose. Telos is meaning. Purpose. Direction. He wants, James wants his readers to experience perfection. What does he mean by perfection? That they understand the gospel. That they persevere in the gospel. That they apply it to the people around them. That they control their tongue. That they control their attitudes. That they recognize their status as a servant of Christ and of Christ's people. That's what perfection means in the scriptures. Maturity. Now we'll get to perfection as perfection one day where, you know, uh, we sang last week, Oh, that day when freed from sin, I shall see thy lovely face. We'll get there. That'll be perfection in practice and in position. But in this context, perfection means maturity. Are we moving towards maturity? Becoming more like Christ and applying the relationships between all these different commands. And then we have this enduring suffering. For God is just and judgment is coming. Blessed are you when you're under trial. For it produces steadfastness. And at the end of chapter 1, or until verse 12, a crown of righteousness for being steadfast in the Lord. Sounds a lot like blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of you. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecute the prophets who were before you. Jesus is saying it in a different way. You have a crown of righteousness as you are steadfast. 
guided by wisdom to understand what is happening in your suffering. Okay? Now, we do not have time to get into the last one because we want to spend some time to show how James and Paul are in perfect harmony with each other. Okay? And I want to be able to show that, and I can't do it in the couple minutes that remain. Because this is the essence of the gospel. So, I want to leave you with this little anecdote. How many of you like musicals? I, I love musicals, so. Uh, I love musical My Fair Lady. Okay? If you've seen it, you understand the story. Eliza Doolittle is down and out. Flower sales. Flower girl selling flowers on the street. She can't speak. She's very uncouth. <laughs> And two men, two men get in a bet. They say, oh, we can turn, it's kind of funny to think about it. Two men are going to turn Eliza Doolittle into this proper English lady, right? So then it goes back and forth, how they're teaching her how to speak, right? How to behave. And yet we see glimpses coming through. And on the outside, she's a certain way, but at certain moments, the real nature still comes out, okay? She realizes at the end that she has simply been the object of this plot among the men, right? And that all along, as a side story, there has been this proper nobleman who has just been enamored by her beauty and by her spunk, right? Who's constantly pursuing her, but can't ever get quite to her. And at the end, after she has walked away from these men who abused her and abused her, right? She runs into this guy who just lavishly pours out his love for her, right? Remember the scene? Oh, you know, she, she's the cat's meow, right? I mean, she hangs the moon and he just, she's had enough of it. So what does she say? Words, 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 words. I'm so sick of words. If you're in love, show me. That's the book of James. Okay? That's the book of James. If we love the Lord Jesus Christ, it will show. And that's how simply put Paul and John, I'm sorry, Paul and James work together. And we'll explore that in more detail next week. Okay? So let's pray Saturday. Father, thank you for the time to be with you and your people, and the word of God, and for how good you are. And we know that we need you and your grace every day. So thank you that you are lavish and giving. Would you teach us now your word? Would you guide us by your good right hand? Would you use us for your glory this coming week? As we commit ourselves into your care, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, everyone. Just you, uh...